And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And here on this show, I read Daredevil comics, I enjoy Daredevil comics, and I talk about Daredevil comics. Yes, Daredevil being the Marvel Comics blind lawyer by day, superhero by night, man without fear. And this time around, we're starting our path to the very end of the Frank Miller run, the original run that really cemented Frank Miller as a legend in terms of Daredevil. This time around, we're looking at Daredevil number 186, the September 1982 issue, which has, not surprisingly, a cover by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen. And this cover has the viewer looking down upon Daredevil as he's in a free fall, passing behind all these well-lighted windows, looking kind of like a tunnel. In fact, for a long time, I thought it was one of those infinity mirrors that you see in certain arcades back in the 80s and 90s. It's very reminiscent for me of Jack Kirby's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which that look was actually repurposed for Superman the Animated Series. And once again, we have Daredevil in turmoil, in complete chaos, and yet it's just not quite as evocative as the previous month's cover. Maybe it's because it loses some of the vibrancy. It tries to do the whole void and without form thing, trying to give us what Daredevil would see, metaphorically speaking, and it just doesn't quite hit the same heights. Very good cover, but not as good as last month's. And you know I'm excited because inside this cover is a story entitled Stilts, written and penciled by Frank Miller with inks and colors by Klaus Janssen and letters by Joseph Rosen. If you want to take a look at the book with me, you can look at it through Daredevil Visionaries, the Frank Miller Volume 3 trade paperback, the Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, which is what I'm looking at, or a Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Trade Paperback, Volume 3. And of course, it's on Marvel Digital, Comixology, and Marvel Unlimited. And our story opens with Wilbur Day, a.k.a. Stiltman, walking along an alley at night when Daredevil runs overhead. Day is preparing to do an undisclosed job and decides he's not quite getting paid enough to go up against Daredevil should he show up. Meanwhile, at Glenn Industry, a newly blonde Heather Glenn decides to confront the board of directors again, who remind her yet again that she is involved just as much as they are with their criminal activities. Daredevil shows up just long enough to tell them that they are going down, but Miss Glenn will not suffer, and he takes off, just as Heather also takes off. And the board of directors get yet another guest, in Stiltman himself, who's being hired to take care of a job for them. And he informs them that his price has just doubled now that Daredevil is a factor. The board of directors reluctantly agree and give him the originally agreed upon sum in a briefcase just as a down payment. But as he begins to count the money in the briefcase, he loses one of his special gloves and it falls so far down that he will never ever find it. So we cut to Melvin Potter's costume shop where Turk, yes he's back from Chicago, Turk is trying to talk Melvin Potter into going into some criminal activities with him. Wilbur Day shows up at the shop and as Melvin goes into the back room to look for a replacement glove for the Stiltman costume, Turk recognizes Wilbur Day. Not as Stiltman, he thinks he's Leapfrog, but he gets it that this is some villain, he's got some gimmick. So as Wilbur leaves the shop, Turk decides to follow him. Next, we check in at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, where Matt is actually working overtime trying to get all the dirt on Glenn Industries. 
Foggy goes to have a word with him because they are defense attorneys, not prosecutors. And it seems that Foggy is shouting louder and louder, overpowering Matt's senses to the point that Matt is crippled and unable to continue the conversation. Later, having recovered from that little fit, Daredevil shows up at the offices of Assistant District Attorney Maxine Lavender to begin delivering more and more dirt on Glenn Industries to begin the takedown. She'll be important later. We come back to Wilbur Day momentarily, where he is at a motel looking at his Stiltman costume, deciding he needs to upgrade it to really go against Daredevil. But Turk whacks him on the back of the head and steals the costume to go talk to the Kingpin about getting a job. Kingpin blows Turk off and goes down to visit Vanessa yet again at the sub-basement of his building. And Turk decides he'll just take the job that Wilbur Day was going to do anyway and get paid for that, just to prove his mettle. At the police station, Lieutenant Nick Manalis gets a visit from Wilbur Day, who's reporting the theft of his Stiltman costume, demanding that he get in touch with Daredevil, use the Daredevil signal or whatever. Manalis insists that he does not even know Daredevil when the Man Without Fear shows up and says, I am all ears. In a brief interlude, Foggy and Heather are having a dinner where they're talking about the situation with Matt and Glenn Industries. Heather states that if she loses Glenn Industries, Matt Murdock is all she has, which Foggy asks if maybe Matt's maybe counting on that? Heather shrugs that idea off. Elsewhere, Turk in his full Stiltman armor decides to show up and try to kidnap Maxine Lavender, and luckily, Daredevil comes on the scene with an ace up his sleeve. Wilbur Day, not being happy that Turk has stolen his invention, has given Matt the key. A literal key to a gyro, which causes the armor to wibble-wobble and then fall down, and Turk is taken out. And in our final scene, Matt is talking to Heather about what they will do in terms of her defense. Namely, play upon her incompetence as an executive, the fact that she was out of her league, and Heather breaks down crying and agrees to marry Matt. And that cheerful scene is where this issue ends, and I am going to take a quick podcast promo break because you know, I've got a lot to talk about here. And I'll be right back with you. Sawate, my name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Batgirl to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not. Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't. And of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I've been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Batgirl Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Batgirl run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Batgirl Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Alrighty, welcome back, and you know what? Normally I go chronologically through the book, page by page, and talk about what I want to talk about, but this time I'm going to do something slightly different. 
I'm going to pull out two scenes and they're going to be the obvious scenes and then talk about those before going back to the beginning and talking about the rest of the issue. The first scene is Heather and Foggy at dinner and they're talking about how Matt is acting strangely and Heather just nails it on the head with a piece of dialogue. She says, first he asks me to marry him right out of the blue, then he starts tearing my life apart. And that is a perfect description of what's been happening between Matt and Heather. I mean, nail on the head. And I think to add to that, she mentions that Matt will be all I have. And Foggy says, do you think he's counting on that? She dismisses it, but there's a knowing look on Foggy's face. A worried, confused, conflicted look on Foggy's face that says, yeah, maybe Matt is counting on that. And we have to ask ourselves, just as Foggy is, what is Matt trying to accomplish here with Heather? I threw out a theory last time that maybe he knows more about the Glenn Industries situation than he's letting on. And maybe he's trying to protect her, that his intentions are good, but his methods are awful. And in context of what's been happening within the run itself, especially with Bullseye and Electra, yeah, that's kind of a possibility that Matt's trying to be overprotective and going about it the wrong way. But maybe Matt's losing his shit a little. Let's be honest. Let's look at the Bullseye situation. Bullseye comes into the picture, potentially dying from a brain tumor. Daredevil saves Bullseye's life from a situation that Bullseye created that Daredevil would not have been responsible for, that it was just circumstance, but Daredevil saves Bullseye's life. And that is on the idea that Bullseye deserves the chance to live and be redeemed. That removing that brain tumor may bring Bullseye full circle into a decent human being. But it doesn't. After the brain tumor is removed, Bullseye is worse than ever, and every death that happens after that is on Daredevil's shoulders, including Elektra, who literally dies in his arms on his front steps. Let's put Elektra into this mix, an ex-girlfriend who seemed like a perfectly normal human being unless you read Man Without Fear, but she seemed like a normal, sweet girl, and she got corrupted into a ninja assassin. And she comes back into Matt's life, bringing the hand with her, and all that that entails. And for Matt, his failure to save her father led her on a path that turned her into a ninja assassin. That's not entirely true, but for Matt's perception, that's what happened. So everything that Elektra does is also on Matt's shoulders, psychologically speaking. So when Bullseye kills Elektra, both of those are on Matt's shoulders on a big, big way. And then that temptation that Matt kind of succumbed to, the idea of not saving Bullseye when he's hanging on that clothesline, callously letting him fall to his death, the opposite action from what he did before. Matt knows he's crossed a line. He's crossed three lines. He let Bullseye live, so everything that Bullseye kills is on him. He failed to save Electra's father, which means everybody that Electra kills is on him. And he almost let Bullseye die. I mean, for all he knew, Bullseye was going to die at the end of this. All he did was see Bullseye fall and it's sheer luck that Bullseye even lived. What that amounts to is that Matt has become a corruptive influence and he's starting to realize it. And these things fly directly in the face of what Matt believes in, specifically his religious faith, but also his faith in the justice system, that it will work, that it will reform people. And yet Bullseye was not reformed. Electra did not make a hero turn. And she died for Matt's sins in saving Bullseye and allowing him to continue. And with that line of thought, it occurred to me why Matt would want to dig up Electra. As creepy as it sounds, and of course, the whole hand thing, they come back, they keep going like Kirigi, and we're going to meet him again. Right now, Matt is psychologically broken and dealing with the consequences of his heroic actions and his failure to be heroic. Everything that used to be clear and binary to Matt is now muddied in shades and shades upon shades of gray. 
So then you take Heather. Heather, who is really innocent in a lot of ways. Yes, I'm not a fan of the character, but she's innocent. She's not a killing ninja machine. She's not a villain in any way, shape, or form. She's normal. And I can see Matt wanting to ground himself and try to bring more normality to his life. But I can also see from his damaged point of view that Matt wants to control that normality. He wants to make sure that normality is protected, but also controlled. Because if he puts it in that little box, it can't be corrupted the way Electra was or the way Bullseye corrupted. So Matt is being completely out of line. Let's be honest with that. He's completely lost his marbles. And yes, he's damaged. And we're going to find out just how damaged Matt is. And from that damaged point of view, Heather becomes something to be put away and locked away and protected at all costs. Because somebody like Bullseye may come along and skewer her on her own, I don't know, stapler. She doesn't have a size, so a stapler will do. Or Glenn Industries, well, that could become her downfall. So he's removing all of the variables that he can, and he's doing it in a very, very unhealthy way. This is an unhealthy relationship. It's not a new thing that it's unhealthy. They've never been a good couple. It's just becoming more and more toxic. And then we jump to the last scene in the book, in which Daredevil's saying, we're going to play upon your incompetence and your inexperience and Heather breaks. She totally, completely breaks. She's crying. She's slumped over and says simply, yes, I'll marry you. She's given up, and Matt has taken all of the fight out of her. Matt is becoming more and more unlikable as a character, which is a conflict for me because I like the character overall, and one of the things I like about the character is that he is imperfect. That's part of his design. He's the superhero who can't see. He's the hero who won't always make the best choice but he's trying to do the right thing. And here we get this activity where he is wearing Heather down and being terrible to her, and we don't know why. And the thing is, Miller never fully tells us what's going through Matt's head. And on one hand, I feel like that's a big, big point of weakness in this particular run that we don't get any justification from Matt's point of view as far as why he's doing it. But on the other side of the coin, do we have to have everything spoon-fed to us as readers? And as much as I attempt to remove future knowledge when looking at a book and try to take it in and of itself in its own context, I can't do that here because what's going to happen is going to be devastating. Foggy witnessing these moments, Foggy having that internal struggle is going to lead to a decision that's going to affect one of these characters permanently. And of course, the fate of that character wasn't planned at this point. Nobody knew what the final outcome would be, but I feel like more justification needed to be given for why Matt is losing his mind. I shouldn't have to dig that deep and put all this information together to try to guess And yes, that's all I'm doing is guessing as to what's going through Matt's mind when he's doing this to Heather. And yet at the end of the day, it is what it is. Matt is wearing Heather down to the point where she's given up. She'll marry him and give up any of her dreams in order to be subordinate to him. And that's scary. That is a scary thought. And the scariest thing is all of this is playing out as perfectly normal within what is kind of played as a very funny, lighthearted issue overall. There are these really adult relationship things that are happening, and it's hard to reconcile the juxtaposition here. I mean, it's very, very uneven, but it does seem to have a lot of depth, a lot of adult ideas. So take that, Bill Maher. Yeah, screw that guy, by the way. But with most of that out of my system, let's go ahead and jump back to the beginning of the issue and talk about the overall story involving Stiltman. And the issue kicks off with Wilbur Day happening across Daredevil running to Glen Industries, which is also Wilbur's destination. And here Stiltman was planning on doing a fairly simple, straightforward job of kidnapping an assistant district attorney. And suddenly, oh, Daredevil, whoa, 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 we got to renegotiate. And let's be honest, as many times as Daredevil has come up against Stiltman and won, fairly handily in some cases, yeah, I would do the exact same thing. I'm not getting paid enough for this stuff. But in many 
ways this happenstance encounter happens to inform the rest of the issue and sets things in motion. If Day hadn't seen Daredevil, he would have gone through with the job just like normal. Turk would have never gotten involved with this. And Maxine Lavender probably would have still been saved by Daredevil. This little serendipitous moment creates a lot of chaos in the issue. And again, it leads us down another fun issue, which is littered with some very serious undertones in the subplot department. Something last issue kind of had, but worked out a little bit better. It felt a little bit more natural there. But we jump to Glenn Industries, where Heather is now blonde. For no reason. She just dyed her hair blonde. I think this was an error somewhere along the way, but they explained it away in the dialogue. And the representative for the board of directors is once again just being a total prick. And he brings something home that's like a punch to the face for Heather. It's his dialogue that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Heather is stating that her father never would have allowed this, and he turns around and says, and I quote... Your father is dead, as dead as his simplistic attitude toward the realities of business. It's like punching somebody when they're down to be that blunt. Hey, your dad's dead, remember? Well, yeah, hopefully she does remember. It's her dad. But furthermore, the fact that everything her father stood for, everything she's been fighting for, is called simplistic. These are men that have no room for business ethics or integrity. If they were in a contest with Billy Madison, they would have run out of the room when somebody mentioned the term business ethics. Here's the other side of that coin. Daredevil is there. He is hearing this and he interjects saying, no, you will not suffer. Glenn Industries will come apart, but Heather Glenn will not suffer. That means Matt was there long enough to hear these words come out of the man's mouth. These are horrible words that he's saying to Matt's would-be fiance. These are words that if they were said about Jack Murdoch, Matt would get in a huff and start fighting. Of course, he has a secret identity to keep and protect and all that. But still, at some point, when is Matt going to stop and start becoming emotionally proactive, realizing what this is doing to Heather? When is he going to see in her the things that would hurt him? Because they're right in front of him. But I've kind of beat that dead horse. So Daredevil leaves, Heather leaves, and Stiltman shows up saying he's going to double the price. And he's given the briefcase and takes off the glove to start counting his money. Now, this should have been averted. Stiltman should have known better. I mean, just simply listening to the Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler, would have completely avoided this situation, but he loses his glove, which is a very real idea. Most of the time, a superhero or supervillain's costume, they're intact. They are just considered part of the character. You never think about little things like losing a component. What if Daredevil was suiting up to go out and fight and he can't find his billy club holster? He's just got to do without. Or if he loses his gloves, that can happen too. The difference is Stiltman is many, many stories above everything and probably will never, ever see the glove, which of course takes us to the next phase for Stiltman. But it's a hilarious moment where he's just trying to count the money, loses the glove. I get it. I've had that kind of day. Maybe that's why I like Stiltman. He's he's relatable in a lot of ways. We've all had a Stiltman kind of day, people. You're on top of the world and just towering over everything and then you just kind of slip and fall. Stiltman is a metaphor for humanity, you and I. And that's my two cents on why I love Stiltman. You are welcome. Of course, this leads us to the costume shop where the gladiator, having been straightened out with Daredevil and working with his girl, is just trying to live a normal life. But here comes Turk back from Chicago. And once again, he's not really seeing things for what they are. Vision he's got, but it's not very good vision. He's not really picking up on what Melvin's putting down, which is Melvin is out. He's just trying to live a life. He's not in the crime game. Which Turk being Turk, he takes it as, yes, I'm still doing crimes. I'm just not talking about them, Turk. Which in all honesty would probably be a very valid take on being a criminal. Let's not put this in the middle of the floor of a public place. Turk is once again trying to work an angle. 
And that is Turk in a nutshell. He's always trying to work an angle and failing. Where Stiltman can create a suit of armor that has him towering up, and he has some degree of ability, and he's obviously brilliant, he's just focusing on the wrong things, Turk is just a complete inept jerk. If Stiltman is a metaphor for us, the humanity, Turk is a metaphor for our pride, the pride in some people that just will not allow them to give up and live a normal life. And Turk is so inept, he realizes that Wilbur Day is somebody, so good on him, he just thinks he's Leapfrog. Having said that, Turk following Wilbur Day, believing him to be some sort of supervillain with a supervillain gimmick, is probably the most brilliant thing Turk has ever done. And I am completely not being sarcastic on that, dead serious, this is the smartest move Turk could make, because Turk doesn't have a gimmick of his own unless you count being inept as being a gimmick. Some people would. So the idea of either teaming up with a supervillain, becoming a lackey for a supervillain, or straight up stealing the supervillain's gimmick is absolutely brilliant. It's genius, and I really commend Turk for having the motivation and the vision to do it. So we jump real quick back to Nelson and Murdoch, where Matt is preparing all the dirt he can get on Glenn Industries, dirt that will yield the downfall of Glenn Industries. Foggy arrives and starts having this conversation with him, which is probably not at a very loud level, maybe a stern voice at best. But for Matt, his senses are going haywire, and it's like Foggy is speaking into a megaphone with the speaker right on Matt's ear. It's overwhelming. And apparently this sort of volume makes Foggy look like the owl, because in the first panel here where he's talking to Matt, he looks so much older, much more rough and rugged, and not in a good way. He looks like the owl. The art smooths out a little bit as the page goes forward, but we're starting to see some of that line work that Miller will start adding and start becoming more and more abstract as he goes forward. But as we're going through the two pages here, Foggy's dialogue begins in regular speech balloons. And this segues into block text, which suddenly becomes the whole panel. It becomes the background. A single letter at one point is the background. So we know Matt is really getting slammed with this sensory overload. And what could have caused that, I wonder? Could it have been? Mm, I don't know. Satan! 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 No, it's actually the radioactive isotope we saw last issue starting to drive Matt's powers crazy. For those with amazing memories, if you take a look back to Daredevil number 43, which has a Jack Kirby cover of Daredevil boxing in the ring with Captain America... This is also an issue I covered in episode 5 of the show, but you may recall in that issue Daredevil got exposed to radioactivity once again, making him really unstable, and that's why he fought Captain America before coming back to his senses. The lesson here is, whatever radioactivity caused Matt's enhanced senses can also be altered by other radioactivity. And I guess depending on the type of radioactivity, it'll determine what the actual effect is. So, what we have in Matt Murdock and radioactivity is Superman and red kryptonite. We know it's going to affect him, the effects will be temporary, and they're going to be different every time. So for anybody listening that might one day hopefully write for Daredevil at Marvel, there's a little story seed. I just want a little bit of credit down the road, no money. Just remember you heard it here. This does seem to be short-lived because the next scene is Daredevil arriving at Maxine Lavender's office, dropping off all the dirt he's gathered on Glen Industries, so clearly he's back up and running enough to get across the rooftops and alleyways and all the way across town to Maxine's office. So these are little spikes in his senses that he hasn't quite nailed down yet. The effect will become more and more prominent as we go forward leading to the ultimate conclusion to this run. So with that little subplot accounted for, we then move to where Turk steals the Stiltman armor from Wilbur Day. Wilbur's at a cheap hotel called Hotel Scrod, which I thought was some sort of joke, and turns out it kind of is. 
A scrod is basically a haddock or small fish especially prepared for eating. Because from Turk's point of view, Wilbur Day is small fish. Turk is a bigger fish eating the small fish, stealing his armor, and taking his gig. And it all makes sense. It's a nice little in-joke. Very, very, very subtle, or perhaps completely inferred by me just by the title of the hotel. And as Turk whacks Wilbur Day's head with a pipe, you get another vibrant blue glow, much like the cover of last issue. This one just comes off a little bit more as a violent assault, an explosion on the back of the head, and it is effective. I feel like I would have a headache just reading this issue. Pardon me while I take some ibuprofen. And what is the first thing Turk does? He doesn't go out and take his own initiative and start robbing somewhere or doing something like that. No, he goes to the kingpin who's in search of a new assassin. And you know, since his last two went so well, you know, Elektra getting killed by Bullseye, who in turn got incapacitated by Daredevil, I would think I would aim a little bit lower than Super Assassins, but maybe not as low as Turk, who shows up. There's a really incredible shot of Turk and Kingpin looking at each other, and it's framed so that we, the audience, are looking up at the two of them. It's quite dizzying. I'm really impressed with the perspective that's shown here. It actually ends up giving you a little bit of vertigo. And it's fun to spin the page around and look at it from different perspectives, getting different aspects as you do so. Really nice, nice piece of art in one panel. Turk gets rejected, so he goes marching across the city. And rejecting Turk right out was probably not the smartest idea. This guy is going to stomp on somebody or something that's going to cost the Kingpin money. But the Kingpin is distracted because his wife is in the lower levels, which I mentioned last week. He's going to go observe her treatment and try to get her out of this place she's in, this mental stasis that she's been existing in since she was found underground. And I think the genius touchstone of this issue is the idea that Wilbur Day doesn't just take his stiltman armor being stolen lying down. He actually goes to the police to report it missing because technically he has not done anything illegal. There's a lot of work being done at Wilbur Day in a very subtle way. When Turk shows up at the motel, Wilbur's talking about how he's got to make it bigger, faster, and taller. Much, much taller. It's got to be taller. Wilbur has a huge inferiority complex, which makes a lot of sense with the design and an idea of Stiltman, that he's somebody who makes himself much taller to be more imposing. And he uses artificial means to get there. And that plays off of even Stiltman's first appearance. This is all about his ego, his lack of ego, and his competing with other scientists. And Wilbur Day has long suffered the effects of that ego, getting him into hot water. His ego is writing checks his body can't cash. Because let's remember, in that first appearance, he got shrank down to almost nothing. Now, he came back, but he was shrank down. He was borderline non-existent. And yet, he's come back. The punishment really fit the crime. If it's ego and it's trying to make yourself taller, that's your gig. It's just as appropriate that you are shrank down to nothing as the ultimate result of your actions. But his ego goes only so far. Once his artificial means of power is stolen, Wilbur Day has no qualms about seeking out his archenemy, who has defeated it time and time again, and giving that enemy the deus ex machina of the suit, the gyro key. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. I don't know if that really applies here, but that ego will stop just short because the ego is already damaged. It's already taken away. It's external of him. It lies in the Stiltman suit. Now you've got a rank amateur walking around in that armor and something's got to be done. For Stiltman, the ends justify the means. The only way to get the suit back is to get Daredevil in on the case? Fine, so be it. Just get my suit back. Get it out of that guy's hands. And that's exactly what Daredevil does, using the gyro key to destabilize the suit and so Turk falls over with a loud crash. 
the high point of this issue is the idea that it is a showcase for Turk who finally gets his hands on some real power and finds himself completely undone once again. He aims high, literally and figuratively, and falls even harder, and it's great. Daredevil's had precious few actual action sequences against Turk. Turk's just been the comedy relief here and there. So for Turk to actually be in a position to challenge Daredevil for once is actually delicious and completely new and vibrant, and it's exciting. And luckily it ends exactly as it should. Turk will one day be a credible threat for a very, very short bit of time. Today is not that day. Yes, it looks very ominous that he's in the Stiltman armor, and you know what? I wouldn't have been mad if Turk actually became the permanent Stiltman, because hilarity would ensue every time he shows up, but I'm glad that it was a one-off because it leads to really a fresh take on this, where it's a fresh punchline that feels new, it feels funny, and it's not wasted and overdone. And that's two issues in a row where Miller has given us a fun issue. Serious consequences, serious stakes, but a fun issue. Speaking of those consequences, the crash once again affects Daredevil's senses, which are getting further and further out of control. No doubt Turk falling over and making the crash would be loud, but this is over the top, and it's splitting Daredevil's skull. Metaphorically speaking, let me just be clear on that. So Miller's definitely moving the subplots forward, the Glenn Industries situation, Daredevil's senses getting out of control, those are both on point. As well as the subplot with Heather and Matt, and their relationship kind of being torn apart. Heather's world is getting destroyed, and it's kind of disgusting. And I know I'm beating the dead horse on that one, but it's a horse that deserves to be beaten. I've come to bury the horse, not praise it. And it occurs to me that the last few issues, a lot of the plot beats have been really good and very entertaining and very engaging, but Daredevil as a character has been squandered. We get very little focus on Daredevil, at least in terms of his internal thinking, where Matt is psychologically, and we're very unclear on how he's really viewing Heather and the potential marriage and what Glenn Industries is doing and how that really equates to him emotionally. And the result is that Matt is not a very sympathetic character, and yet when he's in the Daredevil costume, we really like to see him. His daredevil exploits are great, but the Matt Murdock part is what's missing. I know what you're going to point out, but hear me out. I know I said daredevil is missing. Matt Murdock is within that suit. Matt Murdock is daredevil, which sounds obvious, but we come to the book looking for Matt Murdock. If he's in the daredevil costume or he's out of it, those are two components that must be managed at all times. That doesn't mean you can't tell a daredevil story where he never puts on the costume. Likewise, you can tell stories where daredevil keeps the costume on the full time. What I'm saying is, psychologically as a character, when you're writing a piece, there's got to be an element of Matt Murdock in there. Preferably the inner monologue, or maybe some dialogue, at least something to tell us where our main character is. And that is severely lacking in the last couple of issues. Leaving me feeling a little cold on Matt Murdock, enjoying the Daredevil action, but not really liking the character work that we're seeing here. We get far more mileage out of Foggy and Heather than we do our main character, which, you know, Foggy and Heather are very important, yes. But I come to the book called Daredevil to read about Daredevil, which means I'm reading about Matt Murdock in a costume. And that's kind of a convoluted way of saying Miller is kind of dropping the ball on keeping our main character likable and somebody we can empathize with, and that means a lot of trouble for the book, and maybe that's why the run is coming to a close, that maybe Miller couldn't keep that up. He wanted to write a different type of character that isn't Matt Murdock. Now that I've got that out of my system, let me go ahead and go into the final verdict for Daredevil number 186. The bulk of the issue is a lot of fun, and we get a lot of Daredevil's villains working with each other, against each other, and beside each other to some extent. We have Turk stealing from Stiltman, who has to go to the gladiator's shop to replace a glove, and Turk is going to the Kingpin to appeal for his job. 
That makes me smile because that means Daredevil's cast of characters, his enemies specifically, can operate without him. That they are a world unto themselves and many stories can be told. It's much like The Flash where the rogues can actually operate as their own entity and standalone idea without really having to tie directly into the main character all the time. This is a great tool to use for building towards bigger plots using these subplots to build up and then with a giant payoff. However, with Stiltman and Turk, the payoff is right here. And it's totally worth it. It probably could have been annoying if they played the Stiltman thing a little bit longer with Turk in the armor, unless they were going to go all in and make Turk the new Stiltman and have him being a recurring character in that role, which would have been perfectly fine. If this is going to be a temporary gig, played for just a small plot, that's fine. That works out just as well. We don't need multiple issues of Turk stomping around New York in the Stiltman costume. Not when we can get a very, very great payoff in this very issue with Turk getting knocked over by losing the gyro. It does feel like the subplots with Heather and Glenn Industries are put on a low boil. They're just there simmering, and maybe they simmer just a little bit too long. They come to a relatively clear conclusion at the end of this issue. Definitely not a satisfying conclusion, but a conclusion nonetheless. Overall, I think the tone is lopsided in the last few issues. We had Child's Play, which was a very serious story with very little comic relief, and that moved into Guts, which was almost all comic relief, and this one, which kind of ended up being a little of column A, a little of column B. I'm all for lighter stories and fun stories. You can tell any kind of story with Daredevil, but when it's sacrificing the character himself with little characterization, a little insight to him, as well as trailing along a few subplots that come to an unsatisfying and abrupt conclusion, you get something of a mixed bag with the issue. It's definitely elevated slightly higher than middle of the road, but I don't think this is a standout issue the way Guts was. The quality is definitely at a point where it does elevate it above middle of the road status, but it doesn't have the memorable qualities that the previous issue did. I mentioned that last issue came right up to the line of slapstick without going over, but it did put its toe on the line. This issue goes ahead and just puts a whole foot right over there. It doesn't fall over the line, just enough to bring it right into slapstick territory and bring us back again. I had fun reading it. I didn't have a lot that I wanted to tear apart. It just seems slightly lackluster and doesn't quite deliver on its own potential that's set out. It's an above average issue, but it does not hit the ball out of the park, which is perfectly fine. They can't all be winners. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next week, we're going to take a look at, surprise, surprise, the next issue. We have the Black Widow coming back into the fray with some bad news for her. Daredevil's senses continue to get out of control, so he has to seek out help from his old teacher, Stick. And we've got Ninjas Galore as the hand come back. That is in one week. Until then, I am J. David Weeder. Remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. Hear his name. Hell, devil, fight for what he